to Genesis 49. The next to the last chapter of Genesis. 50 chapters in all. They're all good and this is an especially good one. And in this passage, we're going to look at, Lord willing, the next two weeks we're going to look at Jacob acting as a prophet, looking at his 12 sons and describing the future destiny, not just of them as individuals, but over Old Testament history leading to Christ and even to the second coming of Christ, how their tribes will kind of interact with the purposes of God. And we're going to stress from our passage today, verses 1 through 12, that human destiny, including yours and mine, is in fact God's design. But before we dive into Genesis 49, 1 through 12, let's pray for our teachability to God's word. I mean, this text was inspired as Moses wrote it. It's been preserved. And now we're going to pray the Holy Spirit will illumine it to our eyes and hearts so that Hal can understand it and believe it and it moves from your head gnosis to your heart epinosis and it becomes your basis of your worldview, your convictions, your priorities, your choices. And we're not going to just pray that Hal gets it. We're going to pray that uh, Kyleen there hiding on the back row in the balcony uh, and uh, even Lori very bravely in the front row and bore the you know, the uh, Wileys are always very brave, although we keep moving the seats further away because he was exp- complaining we needed a spit guard up here, so uh, I get excited sometimes. But, uh, yeah, this is spiritual brain surgery, you know, as we, as a group, f- focus on the Word of God expositionally. This is really important stuff, and I love this passage, but it's kind of obscure in a lot of people's minds. So let's pray we'll be teachable, and then also, as is our custom, let's pray for those who physically protect our right to do this under the Constitution, meaning our active military, uh, including Alexander, and uh, our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, Murray is going to be starting school real early because he's going to go back by next weekend to help freshmen at OSU orient to the rigors they're going to be facing. And uh, Murray is a grizzled one-year veteran of the OSU experience. I'm sure we'll, uh, he's a very genial guy. He's the perfect guy for that role. So I'm not going to get to ask you to pray for me very much anymore in this setting. So I'm going to ask you to pray for our teachability, our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters. Okay. Thank you, Murray. Yeah, let's warm up our abstract thought capability. I've got uh, three short cartoons that I think Pam... And Karen Walker and Danny can really relate to because it's about doctors and hospitals and stuff like that. So the nurse is looking at the patient in one of the patient rooms and she says, the doctor will be in shortly to type on the computer and update your chart. If he has time, he will ask you how you're feeling and take a look at your rash. (laughs) Inside joke. Thank you. Number two. Uh, the doctor says your health insurance doesn't pay for heartburn. You need fire insurance for that. <laughs> Which makes sense, you know. And the last one, hold your applause. Uh, my personal favorite one is uh, the surgeon says if you are not 100% satisfied with your surgery, the defective organ will be cheerfully refunded. <laughs> Let's move quickly to why we're here. 
uh, in Genesis 37 through 50, we have what I call the Joseph saga. We know more about Joseph than anybody in the Bible except for our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, David. So we know quite a bit about him. But I think one of the take-homes, one of the principles this story tells us and teaches us is it illustrates the redeeming power of perseverance. That's a holy hanging in there when you're facing the adversity test, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you tie a knot in faith and you hold on and you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when you can't think of very, very many earthly reasons to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the, pers- the redeeming power of perseverance and also forgiveness. Uh, I don't want to be a bitter old man who's mad at everybody. Uh, that tends to be my, uh, my bent. Uh, and I don't want to be like that. I've been forgiven so much. I want to be a forgiving person. I hope you do too. And you see that in the Joseph story. If Joseph had been a mean, cantankerous old man here, he would have just had his brother summarily executed back in chapter 43 and had been in at the end of the story. And he had cause. But we see the redeeming power in families and cultures of perseverance and forgiveness in believers, people who've trusted the Savior for salvation, who actively rest in and live in light of the sovereign providence of God. Now, resting in the providence of God doesn't mean that uh, we just put everything on automatic pilot and we sit home and wait for our paycheck to show up, even though we stop going to work. Uh, the providence of God works through and consistent with what I call routine faithfulness. Now, as a pastor, 31 years here and six and a half in Shreveport, I figured out a long time ago, faithfulness isn't really routine. But you see a lot of it around here. You see it in Pam and Homer. You see it in Ron Miller. Uh, you see it in a bunch of people. And for our purposes, everybody who's here today. So I'll include everybody. But uh, knowing that God has a design uh, allows us uh, not to doubt, pout, and drop out when bad things happen. In fact, we're going to see emphasized in Jacob's prophecies about the trajectory of his four sons he's going to deal with today. Human destiny is God's design, which is taught all over Scripture. One of my favorite places that emphasizes it in Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, people misquote this one sometimes, and it doesn't say God causes everything to be good because there's a lot of bad in a fallen world. So Romans 8.28 and the truth of the providence of God doesn't teach that all things as part of God's purposes and plans are good. There's a lot of bad things God permits, doesn't promote, like murder. Murder is bad, no doubt. However, because God is sovereignly in control, putting this thing together, and it's his design for Julie, everything that's happened to her and everything will happen to her for the rest of her life as part of God's design for her, God is working to put together a mosaic where all the pieces fit together and make a work of art. Now, it's important to also emphasize that the fact that God's uh, design is behind everything that happens doesn't mean that he's morally responsible for evil. He permits evil. He doesn't promote it. Uh, evil has a different relationship with God morally than does good. It's a non-symmetrical relationship. But if I were going to tell you, I'm going to show you a wonderful work of art. Is everybody ready? Everybody sitting down? Okay. Everybody but Tommy's sitting down. Tommy, you may want to sit down. Here's a beautiful work of art. Boom. Isn't that a beautiful work of art? And I know that's lost the effect because I've used it a couple times in a row. But if I was trying to tell you that painting for a million dollars, anybody want to buy it? Half a million? Hundred dollars? I'll sell it to you for a hundred dollars. You know, 
Uh, that's not really very good, is it? Because all you're seeing are three random dark uh, rectangles against an even blacker background. And sometimes you can go through thing, periods of your life where all you can see is the black background and a couple of oddly unrelated horrible things you're dealing with. But if I were to tell you, you're only seeing part of the of the puzzle. You're only seeing part of what's going on. In fact, God sees the whole picture all the time, and he's designed it to look like that. Okay? Now go back to that. Just look at any one of those rectangles. I personally like this one. But just for fun, let's look at that one today. Okay? Lower right. That's not a work of art, is it? It isn't if you only look at part of the puzzle, part of the pieces. But God sees it like that. And boy, once you get to that point, you can say that is a beautiful work of art. It honors Christ. That's the design he has for every believer, even though we will never have enough information to second guess him on that because we're only going to see part of the uh, the plan until maybe when in heaven. I think we either get a full debriefing. And so, Jan, if you have any more questions after you get up there, he'll show you how all the ugly stuff contributed to that. But uh, maybe we just intuitively know that, all right? So let's jump to Galatians, Genesis 49, uh, and and talk about the structure here. We're going to look at the first four of the 12 sons today, and Lord willing, we'll look at the other eight next week. But in verses 1 through 12, first we have kind of an umbrella statement where we're told that Jacob on his deathbed, hey, Jacob's going to die in verse 33 of this chapter, okay, Dustin? So he's literally, these are the last things he says before he checks out. On his deathbed, he gathers his sons, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel in biblical history, to share prophetic insights about them and their tribes. So we'll look at verses 1 and 2 in a second. And then we're going to see Jacob prophesying about first Reuben, the oldest one, then Simeon and Levi together because they're very similar in personality and they're the next two sons of his, and then about Judah, and he's the most important one for our purposes. So look at... uh, Verses 1 and 2, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jacob, you know, the whole human uh, basis ultimately for uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. Jacob gathers his 12 sons to share prophetic insights about them and their tribes. He summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves. That's kind of a formal goodbye, and he calls it a blessing later. We'll see next week upon his guys, because they're all still sons. Some of them are not going to get the same blessings or authority, but they're all still sons. He doesn't disfranchise any of them. Let me tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. My mother uh, died two years ago, but in 2007 she contracted Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which I had never heard of until she had it, and she was dying of that, and we were told she was dying. In fact, we were told one afternoon, I'm the, uh, I'm the oldest of four children, that uh, she'd only be with us about an hour, so uh, everybody left the room except me and my three sisters, and we had a very meaningful dialogue, and so I can kind of picture that. And then toward the end of that hour, she started feeling better, and she literally said, you know, if I don't die now, this is going to be very embarrassing. Those, that... <laughs> That's what she said. So you think I've got a weird sense of humor? She put me in the shade. And and God gave her 10 more years. I mean, like a complete healing from Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So you never know. But we I've read ahead, and I know he's about to die. Okay, Jacob's about to die. But he wants to formally get the sons together and kind of get them organized. And God is allowing him 
to receive some direct divine revelation about the trajectory of their tribes. So, and we got to put this kind of in biblical context. And, you know, remember, we're New Testament believers on this side of the cross reading about events that happened 4,000 years ago here in round numbers. Um, and so we got to keep that in mind. But when we're talking about Jacob here, we're talking about the human foundation of the whole biblical story about how God was going to bring the Savior. The Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before the first coming of Christ, and it stresses our mortality, our sinfulness, but the fact that God's going to send a Savior. And he's going to send that Savior through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And we're going to see that underscore Judah today like never before. But we're living out over here in 2019. So we, we read the Old Testament with a New Testament lens to be sure, but we also want to be careful to appreciate what it says in context. Now, for us living in the New Testament era, in in the 21st century, not A.D., not the 18th or 19th century B.C., of course, we're interested in prophecy, not about just about stuff that happened four years, 4,000 years ago. We're interested in, like, what's God going to do in the future? This is a just a layout of the book of Revelation as it's written. And so we're living right about there. Let's just put our date there. Boom. Here, July 21st. Can you believe that? Man, summer has gone by so fast. But here we are, I would say, in the latter phases of the church age, and we're looking forward for the coming of Christ for the church, the tribulation, antichrist, second advent, and kingdom. And we're going to see today in Genesis 49, written way back here, took place way back there 4,000 years ago, uh, a reference to the kingdom of the Messiah that hadn't even happened yet. So this is really a cool, cool passage. We're going to see that uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah will one day rule the world. Now remember, Old Testament folks were saved just like New Testament folks were saved by God's grace, by his initiative, through faith directed toward the promised Messiah. And if you can think of a funnel, as you get closer and closer to the coming of the Messiah, the specific, the, the, the prophecies get more specific. And today we have an important one, because up to this point in biblical history, they knew the Savior would be a human being, not an alien or an angel, born of a woman, a male, not a female, a member of uh, the line of Shem, and a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But today we're going to be told it's of one particular tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be Judah. So realize that the Old Testament folks were saved by faith directed forward. They were saved on credit because the payment had not been made yet. That's what Jade White Pentecost used to say. Uh, but we're looking back at a provided Savior, and we're living in this blessed interval between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we've got a lot of blessings that the Old Testament folks didn't have. But in, Je- in John 8, Jesus says, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we're looking at Jacob talking about his sons, right? Roughly 2000 BC. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus' day, Jesus' day leading up to the cross, and he saw it with, what, did he have like a time machine? No, through the eyes of faith, he believed the promises. In fact, Genesis fifteen six says Abraham believed God in the promises about a Messiah coming through Abraham and his uh, son through Sarah. Uh, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? Which is why Romans in the New Testament says about salvation. Listen. I've studied a lot of world religions. I've taught about world religions at a college level. 
all the other world religions are saying you need to do, do, do this and don't do that. And maybe you'll generate enough good karma or enough good spiritual equity. You can kind of get what that religion is offering you. It's only Christianity that says God doesn't need your help. You are guilty and unable to save yourself. But God so loved the world he gave his son to die to pay for our sin, to be resurrected from the dead. So if you're looking for life after death, look to the resurrected one, right? Christ died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore, right? And because Christ died for Lori McCann's sins and Wolfgang Deeg's sins, and more importantly, Brad McCoy's sins, we don't have to die in our sin, which is why Romans says salvation is not all like all the religions say. you got to earn it. you got to do something for it. But to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, the one that Abraham believed the promises about, the ones that uh, we believe in as the provided Savior on the cross, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Abraham had the same thing in the Old Testament. So that's very important. Gospel means good news, or I like acronyms, God's offer of salvation, providing eternal life to all who believe. This is our invitation to you. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. If you're listening, you got it. Righteousness, you need it and you can't manufacture it. Judgment, personal accountability for God, it's coming. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For by grace, which means unmerited favor, you don't earn it, you can't undeserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Angie's one of the nicest persons I've ever met, but she's not nice enough to earn salvation. Um, right, is that the way you wrote that? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, she's really sweet. Um, she was my original secretary, and I've kind of wore out like eight secretaries, and now Maxine has, has quit. She refuses to help me anymore, so I have a problem with secretaries, man. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so you got nothing to brag about. And then the next verse says, and so we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works as the effect, as the fruit, not the root. So right where you sit, as you're convicted of your guilt and your inability, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it, but I want you to. I believe you died for me on the cross. I receive you from the depth of my heart. I believe in you as my Savior. That was the introduction, verses 1 and 2. It's even going to get better. Look at this. Um, we're going to look at these prophecies about Reuben and his tribe, Simeon and Levi and their tribes, and Judah and his tribe. But we need to say two disclaimers. Number one, um, each believer, including the believers that would be in these tribes, and you and me, each believer's personal bent, I kind of hate to use that word, but it makes sense in this context. Each believer's personal bent, particular bent, that is our general tendencies, including our specific weaknesses, are not excuses. He's going to kind of look at some of these characteristics in these, in these uh, sons of his and say, hey, your tribes will kind of play out some of those tendencies. But just the fact that we've got certain tendencies are not excuses for us to sin, but they can help explain why we might be especially tempted to sin in certain areas 
or in certain situations, if you understand what I mean, okay? Uh, I'm told that 10% of us are genetically uh, designed to become alcoholics if we drink. I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life, and I've done a lot of other wonderful things too. Uh, although I don't think the Bible says you can't, can't drink wine. I don't think Jesus turned water into Kool-Aid myself. I think he turned water into wine, right? But drunkenness is a problem, and it is sinful. So some people just can't take the first one, and I never took the first one. And, you know, I don't believe in luck, and I'm not superstitious. It's a little bit stitious. But uh, every time you get a 50-50 chance, 90% of the time it doesn't work for me. So I'm not going to take the 10% chance on that. So I don't know if that's a problem for me or not. But I know I've got certain areas like unnecessarily sar- being sarcastic. You can ask my wife about that. Or going too long on Sunday morning. You can ask several people about that. You know, I've got my tendencies, which might explain why they might happen, but they don't excuse them. And number two, many passages, but especially a whole chapter, Ezekiel 18, stresses that individuals are not morally responsible for the sins of their parents nor of their children. Uh, but it is true certain types of sin tend to characterize generational groupings. Now, I mentioned this Wednesday night, but I thought it was still a good example. The McCoy family have, for a long time, were involved in a very famous feud with the Hatfields, okay? So many of my people were involved in, back in West Virginia, in Virginia, Virginia and Kentucky, uh, were involved in uh, a feud that involved the deaths of a lot of people, right? Uh, but I want you to know it stops with me. Okay, <laughs> I have no hatred in my heart for any Hatfield whatsoever. I think it ended a long time ago. Uh, but the point is uh, the fact that uh, we've got certain characteristics or tendencies in our bloodline doesn't doom us, or or nor should we be uh, held responsible for our parents' sins necessarily or our our children's sins. Now, if you give your children's drugs and guns and say, go rob the jewelry store and they get killed or get arrested, you are responsible for that. And I'm, not, I'm talking in general, if you follow me. So sometimes people read this chapter and he's predicting kind of the trajectories of these guys' tribes based on their basic characteristics and say, well, they're just doomed to that. No, they're still making choices each generation. So let's look at uh, what he says to Reuben, who's the oldest one. And without getting too much in the weeds on this, this guy had four wives, which is never a good idea. You don't need more than three. I'm just saying that. Now, actually, uh, the Old Testament describes some of these people with multiple wives. It never prescribes it. In fact, it teaches one man, one woman, so directly. So these are bad, bad examples, and you can see the dysfunction in much of it. But there's Reuben. He's the first one, the first son of Jacob and the first son of Jacob through Leah, uh, his first wife. So we read in verse uh, 3 and 4, Reuben, Jacob is speaking as a prophet here, you are my firstborn. And as my firstborn until problems happen, based on your character flaws, you are my might and the beginning of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity over the other sons and preeminent power. Yet, uncontrolled as water, and in some places that term, which is a little bit unusual in the Old Testament, refers to boiling water. And boiling water is not just uh, difficult to deal with. It can be downright dangerous if you spill it on you or spill on someone else. Yet uncontrolled as water, like boiling water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Uh, he went up to my couch. Reuben's consistently bad choices climaxed 
by serious sexual sins with Bilhah. Now, who's Bilhah? Bill, Bill, Bill who? Yeah, no. That would be the fourth wife of his father. That's a problem, right? So that's a serious sexual sin. Uh, led to not just the loss of his birthright, but the loss of his preeminence like uh, thereafter among the sons right then. Interestingly, uh, when you look at uh, Reuben, who's prominent in some of the early lists because he's the first one on the list, uh, no major Old Testament figure comes out of that tribe, Doug. You can't find find them doing really anything that significant. Not that many individuals weren't great uh, believers and did great things, but in general, that tribe does really underachieves, let's put it that way. No prophet, judge, or king comes from the tribe of Judah in all of Old Testament history. Uh, and I think a principle there is sinful actions can rob believers of special blessings now and can cause them to forfeit positions of spiritual leadership. He doesn't lose his sonship. He doesn't even lose his inheritance. He just loses special firstborn kind of double inheritance, which goes to Joseph at the father's uh, initiative. Uh, and you see this, I think, in, especially in public ministry, uh, the more public your ministry and the more public your sin, uh, the more rehabilitation is going to be necessary if you ever get back to that. In some cases, you can just blow your credibility so much, not lose your salvation, salvation, but you can blow your credibility so much it really becomes impossible for you to ever go back to the visible position you had. So that's something that uh, they really stressed a lot at Dallas Seminary. And uh, back in the old days, when every year we'd get a brand new physical alumni guide just for the alumni with uh, kind of where we lived and who we were married to and all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, uh, you'd see people you knew who were married to Linda, and then two years later you heard they dropped out of the ministry. You don't know the details, and then you see, you know, maybe a couple of years later, they, st- they don't blot you out of the alumni guide no matter what you do. <laughs> you know, but the guy's married to Bambi, you know, so that's, that's the deal. So you wonder about things like that. But nowadays it's all online, so we all keep up with each other all day long. We just get up there and see who's got new lives and stuff. Now, I don't, I don't do that, but I used to do that once a year. So I'm confessing my sins up here, and that's a good thing. So anyway, uh, Jacob anticipates Reuben's trajectory and says, hey, you could have been and you should have been kind of number one leader in the family, but you, you blew it, and your character trait caused you to lose that special blessing in that position. Now, uh, in verse is, uh, five through seven, Jacob speaks to two, about two sons together, Simeon and Levi. Let's read that and talk about it. Uh, verse five, Simeon and Levi, their father says on his deathbed as a prophet, you guys are brothers. Well, but what else is new? All these guys are brothers, either full brothers or half brothers, but he means in a special way. You guys are two peas in a pod. You guys are very similar and your tribes will have similar Consequences, not exactly the same, but similar. Uh, and then talks about them in the third person. Their swords are implements of violence. Now, back in ancient Near East, everybody, uh, nobody concealed and carried. Everybody carried openly, but they didn't have guns. They had swords, you know. But these guys, unfortunately, Levi and uh, Simeon had anger management problems, and they could become ultra violent, and that's not good, especially in uh, public ministry. Uh, their swords are implements of violence. He's thinking about something that happened. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, and then he says, Jacob, let my soul not enter into their counsel. I shouldn't be let myself be influenced by their ways because at their worst, they're quite bad. 
Uh, Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they murdered men. They wiped out the entire male population of the village of Shechem under false pretenses. There was a major problem with their sister and Shechem, the guy who lived in Shechem, the city. But after that was all padded over and things were, and he made efforts to to make it right, Shechem did, the guy, uh, the brothers, these two, set the entire city. It's a little bit sensitive what he did, but they had a particular uh, operation that made them kind of uh, out of, uh, uh, kind of on the disabled list for a couple of days. And when they were in their most painful post-operative state, these two guys just whacked every male member in that village and killed them all and murdered them all. Kind of ultra violent. And not only that, it's interesting, this is just cultural. Because in their anger, they murdered men, the whole male population of the city of Shechem. And in their lack of self-control, they lamed oxen. Why do they say that? Because that means they intentionally cut the leg tendons in these farm animals, which means that the widows now are not going to be able to readily function you know, in that agricultural and uh, farm ranch community that was ancient Israel. But you read about the details of that, and I'll let you read about it later in Genesis 34. And you do have their their uh, sister, Dinah, who's violated by Shechem. But Shechem, uh, I think, was legitimately repentant about what happened, and he wanted to make it right. He wanted to make it good. He wanted to marry the sister, Dinah. And the brothers said, well, we won't, uh, and especially Levi and, and Simeon, said, okay, you can marry her, but you guys are uncircumcised Gentiles. We don't like that. You need to submit to circumcision. And so as adults, they all did that. And when they were in their most, let's say, a disabled state in the aftermath of that surgery, these guys killed them in cold blood. So that was bad. And that wasn't just uh, one isolated incident. These guys had a tendency to do that. But look what happens here. He says to them, verse 7, Cursed be their anger because it's fierce and their wrath for it's cruel. Now listen, not all anger is evil. There's such a thing as righteous indignation, right? And uh, I think about I think about child molesters or people that do get drunk or high and get into cars and run into little, uh, you know, kind of little... Uh, uh, some mom and her kids are going to the park or something, and the drunk driver runs into him and kills him. That makes me angry, and I think it's a righteous indignation. However, notice that the Apostle Paul says, "Be angry in Ephesians, but sin not. Don't let your the sun go down in your wrath." Which I think means most of us are so messed up, including me. If I stay mad very long, I'm going to mess it up, and it's not going to be righteous indignation anymore. It's going to be excessive, and not give it to God. So that's what happened to these guys. Uh, but look. He says, cursed is, are these guys for their anger. They've, they've got an anger management problem. They're very violent. It's not righteous indignation. They might have started with righteous indignation about Dinah's situation, but they were really ultimately beyond that, and they went way beyond any righteous indignation. Uh, and then he says, quoting as an oracle statement here, God's purpose, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And in fact, what happens in Old Testament history is, uh, Simeon, uh, by the time, just before the conquest, Moses leads them out, that's the extra generation, Joshua takes them into the land, they conquer the land. Just at the end of the book of Numbers, when they recount the second generation, the generation that would conquer the land, Simeon it was, was the smallest of the tribes, 
And in fact, according to uh, Joshua 19, after they conquer the land and divide the land among the 12 tribes, Simeon doesn't even get a land tract. He gets a series of small cities in Judah, in Judah's land tract. So he is literally scattered, uh, doesn't have a land tract, and that thing was fulfilled literally uh, during the conquest and thereafter. Now, Levi, who ended up becoming uh, the head of the Levites, and those of the family of Aaron in that tribe became the priests, as you probably know, uh, they weren't given a land tract either. Uh, they were given 48 cities throughout the other people's land tract, 48 cities in total. So you'd always have a Bible teacher somewhere nearby, in addition to the priest going in and out of the central sanctuary kind of thing. But I think the principle here, that's the guys we're looking at now, is lack, control, lack of self-control, especially physical violence. Those kind of things are in, incompatible with legitimate spiritual authority. Now, Levi changes his way, and by the time of the uh, Exodus, uh, they have strong faith and things get improved for them, but they are still scattered throughout the, the, the tribes, as that prophecy says. But let's move to the really important one here. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Judah and Joseph next week are the two sons that really get a lot of treatment in these oracle statements by uh, their father Jacob. And it's turned out they are the two most important ones in this context for sure. And I I love this. And this is one of the uh, earliest prophecies about the Messiah that we're going to see in verse 10. But look at verse 8 through 12. The father, Jacob, continues, Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Uh, It's a play on words because Judah means to praise. Uh, Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. He's going to do well in warfare, righteous warfare. Uh, Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now, in this generation, they're bowing down to Joseph. But in general, this was going to be the royal tribe. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you've gone up. He's a lion, and he's able to deal with prey, and he couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion he, who dares to rouse him up. Uh, even uh, coming into Egypt there when they were moving to live with Joseph, Judah led the way, and the tribe of Judah was always seen as the leader. Uh, and then verse 10 says, The scepter, or this royal bejeweled rod that a king would hold in the ancient Near East, the scepter or the royal rod shall not depart from Judah. That's going to be the tribe through which the kings are going to come, starting with David and thereafter, and ultimately the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, nor the royal, the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. We'll come back to that. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Why would he say that? We'll explain he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. That's describing what he's going to do as a figure for hyper-prosperity. Uh, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, let's go back to verse 10. The scepter, the right to rule, the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, there is a city... It, then, and, and archaeologically, you can still go see it in Israel called Shiloh. But we're not talking about a city. We're talking about a person here. This is a proper noun for an individual. And I remember distinctly, my uh, second-year Hebrew teacher at Dallas Seminary, Don Glenn, spent like a whole class session describing the history of this route and all this kind of stuff to validate that in this context, Shiloh means, should be translated, the one who brings peace. And everybody 
including early Jews, understood this to be a reference to the Messiah and a personal reference to him. However, uh, the basic kind of uh, conventional wisdom is that this word should be translated, the one to whom something belongs, and here it means the royal right to rule, but I'm still going to go with Professor Glenn's opinion, which is why I put it in the notes, the one who brings peace. Now, how in the world is the Messianic ruler, the Messiah, going to bring peace? Well, he's going to bring peace with God through a sacrifice for all those who trust him for it. But he's also going to bring peace to the world uh, because many Christians believe that after the second coming of Christ, there will be a literal 1,000-year kingdom in this world, and Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem. Now, some Christians allegorize that, and they believe those prophecies are fulfilled by the church now spiritually. But uh, I'm a happy pre-millennial believer that believes before the millennium on earth, a physical millennium, a thousand years on the earth, Jesus comes back before that and establishes that. And I think this is a reference to that. And in fact, I'd say everything from the middle of verse 10 to the end of verse 12 is talking about conditions in the millennium on the earth. To him shall be the obedience, not just of the Jewish people, but of the nations, the peoples, visibly on earth. That happens in the millennium. He's going to tie animals that normally would eat a grapevine, so nobody in the ancient Near East would tie a farm animal next to a grapevine because grapevines are really valuable and uh, necessary, and you're not going to tie your animal to a grapevine because he's going to eat it, plus he's going to get away. You know, But this is a kind of a figure for extreme prosperity. There'll be so many grapevines, so much prosperity, you can tie your farm animals to grapevines, it won't matter. Donkey's colt to the choice vine. Uh, there's going to be so much prosperity, you can wash your clothes in wine, as it were, which is not a good idea, literally, but it's just talking about ultra-prosperity. His robe in the blood of grapes. And this person, that is the Messiah, as he rules from Jerusalem in this kingdom, which is still future to our day, is ha- healthy and happy, and that will be his domain, and that will be what he will do. So notice, this prophecy says that Judah and his tribe will have authority over his brothers and their tribes, Judah and his tribe will be the one through which Israel's king will come, the scepter, the royal right to rule. Israel and his tribe will ultimately produce the ultimate king who will rule over the ultimate kingdom. Let's look at some other Bible prophecy about that. Look at Zechariah toward the end of the Old Testament. Not Zephaniah, P-H, but Zechariah, C-H. Back toward the back of the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, you went too far. right? Here somewhere, I can't even find it myself. But look at chapter 14. Zechariah, the last chapter of Zechariah. Look at verses 1 through 4. Behold, a day is coming, and it still featured our day. For the Lord, when the spoil taken from you, Israel, will be divided among you. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The house is plundered. The women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off. Then the Lord... The Lord Jesus Christ will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. You ever been there? Some of you people have been there. You've been there, haven't you, Carla? Uh, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split. There'll be a, an earthquake and drop down to verse 9, same chapter. And after all of that, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. His name, the only one. Go to chapter 2 of Isaiah. So go back toward the front of the Old Testament a little bit. 
Isaiah, 66 chapters, it's a big target. If you need to use the table of contents, no problem. Look at Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. It'll come about in the last days after the glorious arrival of the Messiah, second advent we'd call it. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, be raised above all the other hills, and all the nations, all the peoples, as the Genesis 49 10 and 11 passage says, all the peoples will come and be part of that. Many peoples will say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. We've seen Jacob prophesy this in Genesis 49, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Jerusalem, Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he'll judge between the nations. That is the Messiah, Shiloh, will judge between the nations during the millennium on the earth. Render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords in the plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. That's where that is is set in the Bible. It's not set now. We're not supposed to get rid of our national defenses now. We wait until Second Advent, then we won't need them. Nation after the Second Advent will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they ever again learn war. Now go to chapter eleven of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah. Go to chapter eleven. Chapter 11, Isaiah. Love it. Isaiah is writing in 700 B.C., round numbers. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David and Jesse came many generations after Jacob and Judah, but it's all the same line. And a branch will spring from his roots. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord And he, that is, this shoot, this Messiah, this Davidic descendant, this descendant of Judah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll not judge by just what human eyes see, nor make decisions just by human perception, but with righteousness, perfect righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he'll strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked, and righteousness will be a belt around his loins, and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. And under those conditions after the second advent, the glorious arrival of Shiloh, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. You can go to the zoo with no bars, and you can pet the lions. It won't be a problem then. The wild animals won't be wild anymore. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, calf with, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. They're all going to be eating grass instead of each other the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox people say that's impossible i know it's impossible but god's going to change nature so it'll be possible he created everything he can do that the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth during the millennial kingdom not during the church age will be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea it will come about that in that day the nations will resort, will bow down to the root of Jesse, that is the Messiah, Shiloh, uh, and his resting place will be glorious. And I would say, I bet it will be. Yeah, look at verse, uh, one more, chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. A lot of times you hear this read at Christmas time, but just the very first part of verse 6 is about Christmas, first advent, all the rest is second advent. Quite often you have that. Literary compression where you move from one to the other in the Old Testament. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's Christmas. And ultimately, after the second advent, the government of the world will rest on his shoulders, not the UN. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David, family of Judah, to establish and uphold it with righteousness and justice from then on forevermore. And look at that last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 14, the second advent, putting out, ending human history in God's terms. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Go back to Genesis 49. So we're looking at Judah. We're seeing in this prophecy about Judah, the man in the tribe, that the Messiah is going to come through him. And Shiloh, a reference to Christ, the Messiah will be the ultimate king who will rule over the ultimate kingdom. And boy, I'm looking forward to that myself. And hope you are too. Uh, so look what we got here. You know, here's our Old Testament folks receiving information about who the Messiah is going to be. And we say as we move through time like a funnel, it gets more specific. But we get a major addition from the standpoint of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when we're told now that we should be looking for a Messiah who will be a human, male, a Semite, Jewish, and of one particular tribe. And you want to keep that in mind when you get to the New Testament. The very first thing in the New Testament is in a genealogy that proves Jesus qualifies to be the Messiah because he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and Solomon, right? So you read, boom, you read uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ, Abraham's father of Isaac, Isaac father Jacob, Jacob's father Judah. Judah's important because that's the, the line through which the Messiah must come. David's the father of Solomon, and on it goes. And then you get to the last generation, and then uh, we say uh, Jacob, not Jacob from up here, but a different guy named Jacob, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. This is his legal genealogy through his legal father, but in the original Greek, that is the feminine personal pronoun. Everything is about the males until you get here. Joseph, husband of Mary, feminine, by whom Jesus was born through Mary. Joseph was not the father. Virgin conception, virgin birth, but legally, uh, Jesus qualifies, and Matthew does that very first thing in his gospel to show, yeah, he qualifies to be the Messiah. People are going to say, well, he's just from an obscure village and he's not even qualified. Yeah, he is. But stressing here the kingdom here in these Old Testament passages, and I think as a principle, let's put it this way as we begin to close, God's plan from all eternity with God the Father as the author of the plan, God the Son as the active agent of the plan, God the Holy Spirit as the activating agent of the plan, was for Jesus as the God-man Savior, Shiloh, the son of Judah, son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David and Solomon, etc. A human being, not an angel, like I like to say, not an alien, a male, not a female, a Jew, not a Gentile, a member of the tribe of Judah, family of David, to be the Savior of the world in two roles, in two aspects, two advents, I should say. First is the Lamb of God who goes to the cross. Second is the Lion who will conquer and end human history in God's terms and establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth so you can see what we could have had. And then it gets even better. We get the uh, final rebellion, a destruction of the present universe, a whole new universe. So I would say this in closing. Human destiny, not just Judah's, but yours, is God's design. I'd also say we have a very privileged position living between the first and second advent. First Peter talks about that. 
Concerning this salvation, the New Testament writer, First Peter says, uh, the prophets, Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was uh, to be yours in the New Testament era, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, who is having them write the Old Testament scripture, was indicating when he, the Spirit, predicted what? The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the glories to follow. It was revealed to the Old Testament prophets who saw, Abraham saw Christ coming in the eyes of faith, that they were not serving themselves. That wasn't going to happen in their time. But you, folks, after the first coming, uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. This fascinates the angels that ought to fascinate us. But again, we're so fortunate in God's purposes to have us on this side of the cross. And that's one thing that the Lord's Supper emphasizes. Uh, the first um, Sunday in August, in second hour, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is this inner advent. You know, as often as you do this, you remember the Lord's death until he comes back. You're just reminding yourself where you are in biblical history. Uh, you might say, well, I'm no big thing. I mean, God's God's had his destiny for me. My my life is God's destiny. Yeah, you might say, well, I'm just a little guy. You know, I've got a little church, you know, on this little corner here, and it's no big deal. Put that in its proper biblical context. That's the biblical context, man. You're living in the church age. You've been briefed on kind of the general plan today. And I would say, you know, this isn't pie in the sky. This is cheer up. Cheer up. It's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. And then it's going to get a whole lot better for a thousand years. And then it's going to get absolutely perfect. And so I'm going to leave you with my happy ending today by reading 1 Corinthians 15:58, which is applying the same principles here. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Dustin and Angel, uh, hardworking parents of young children, not easy. Debbie and Brad, hardworking grandparents of young grandchildren, harder. Uh, a lot more fun. Stand firm in the faith. Let's, now's not the time. Now's not the time to compromise the faith to try to get the world to like us. They hate us. They hate what we stand for. They don't want to believe Jesus is the only way. They think we're the haters. We're the only ones that know how to love, man. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. For Dustin, that involves going to work and working 40 or 50 hours really hard to provide for his family in this season of his life. He's going to eventually become rich and famous. And I hope you remember the people who loved you before you were rich and famous. Uh, um, I can think of several... Hey, same thing to you, Murray, okay? Because you know... Your life is destined by God. You've got a destiny. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray that uh, we'd not just understand this information, but we would realize, man, you've got a big plan. It goes back, way back, and it includes us. And now it's our time. It's our turn. It's our generation to live for the faith, to share the faith, and to be a blessing to people and glorify you. And I pray you to uh, be uh, at work in that process and the product of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.